Today is the feast of all saints when we celebrate those in whom the light of Christ has shone during their earthly pilgrimage. We typically think of saints in terms of big saints, capital S saints like St. Matthew or St. Francis or St. Cuthbert. But in the Bible, every follower of Jesus is called a saint because we reflect the light of Christ received at baptism. Listen to how St. Paul addresses his letters. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, or to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae, Do you get the message? We are saints and called to be saints. In light of this, our passage from Matthew's gospel is especially appropriate, for it describes what it is to be a saint, a follower of Jesus, and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's gospel is structured around five discourses. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of those discourses and the longest. And both the structure of Matthew's gospel and its setting on the Sermon on the Mount setting on the mountain are important. They show that Jesus is giving us a new law. You remember the Torah, the law in the Old Testament was five books, the five books of Moses. Um, Here we have five discourses that Matthew is laying out in his gospel. And just like Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law, Jesus now goes up on Mount Sinai to give the instruction. But this is not a list of rules as it was in Mount Sinai, but Jesus' instructions on how a person who has received the gospel message in repentance and faith should now live. The Beatitudes are clearly supposed to be some sort of introduction to the sermon, but what kind? I think among other things, they show us how we enter the kingdom and also how we grow as citizens of the kingdom. In other words, as saints. The Beatitudes encourage us to come to God with empty hands, with simple faith, and with grateful hearts. Or if you prefer the language of the ever-popular, self, ever-popular self-help books, we'll look at how to become a saint in three easy steps. <laughs> Step one, come with empty hands. The sermon as a whole describes the blessings and norms of the kingdom. To enter the kingdom, however, we do not have to measure up to the norms. We simply have to repent and believe. Right before the sermon, Jesus proclaimed the gospel message in these words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The rest of the sermon has Jesus' instruction to his followers, but the Beatitudes make it clear that the kingdom and its blessings are not something we earn, but a free gift of God's grace. That's what those first four Beatitudes all describe. Those who are poor and humble, dependent on God, yearning for God, for God to deliver his people and set the world to rights. We come to God with a whole bunch of problems and no solutions, with needs, not credentials. In other words, we come with empty hands. Step two, 
come with simple faith. We come first with empty hands and he fills them with present blessings and with the promise of future blessings. God's promises are received by faith. We trust God's word. And these blessings are not things so much as his promise to make things right. Being blessed in the sense in which the Beatitudes use it uh, is not putting on a fake smile and pretending to be happy when we're not. It's the deep inner joy and contentment of those who have hung their hopes on God and as they await the ultimate fulfillment of his promises, have already experienced a foretaste in the present. The good news that Jesus brings to the poor, in fulfillment especially of Isaiah 61, is that God is a generous giver and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who have nothing to offer but empty hands, God gives the kingdom as an inheritance. It even shows up in the way the Beatitudes are expressed. That formula that repeats, they shall be comforted, etc., is what the uh, Bible scholars call a divine passive, meaning that the unnamed agent in each passive verb is God. They shall be comforted means God will comfort them. They shall be filled means God will fill them with good things. And this is where we rub up against probably the greatest tension in the Beatitudes. After all, it doesn't look like the poor, mournful, meek, justice seekers, etc., are blessed. It looks like they're suffering and dying. In fact, in the last Beatitude, Jesus acknowledges as much. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not who suffer because they've done wrong, but who are persecuted for doing right. Put another way, if the kingdom has come with Jesus, why does the world look no different than before? It's true that the promised blessings of the kingdom are, for the most part, not a present reality, but a future hope. That's why entering the kingdom requires repentance and faith. Faith that God will one day fulfill these promises. But even now, we experience a partial fulfillment in, of all places, us. By living into the norms of God's kingdom and by God's grace, God is overturning the prevailing order of things and spreading his kingdom rule through his saints, who are to be a little colony of heaven, a little glimpse of God's rule on earth. And our hope for the future based on our faith in God's promises, gives us confidence to work toward that future in our own day. It doesn't mean that all promises will go away in the present. It means rather that, in the words of Mother Julian, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. So, our steps. Step one, Come with empty hands. Step two, come with simple faith. And step three, come with grateful hearts. We come to God with nothing but faith. 
but God does not leave us there, unworthy recipients of grace, waiting for God to finish his work. Beatitudes 5, 6, and 7, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, describe traits that should govern our lives, and the rest of the sermon fills out the norms of the kingdom, how we who have received the kingdom as a gift are to live as citizens of the kingdom in the present. And let's be honest, it's a high bar. It's filled with radical demands, not just for conduct, but also for the desires and dispositions of our hearts. But even here we must remember that this teaching comes within the context of the good news, which is a work of grace from first to last. When we fail to live up to our calling, as we inevitably will, we simply come back to God with empty hands, with simple faith, and with grateful hearts. And we're not supposed to go it alone. As St. Paul says in Philippians, God is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or in Ephesians, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we open ourselves to him in faith, he works in us the character of Jesus. As Paul says in another place, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we become what we already are in Christ. For not only are these blessings and norms of the kingdom, they also describe Jesus himself, who mourned over this faithless generation, who was gentle and lowly in heart, who in mercy had compassion on the crowds, who lived with a single-minded commitment to the will of his Father, who is called Prince of Peace because he has made peace between humanity and God, and who endured persecution and death for the sake of righteousness. In other words, the kingdom looks like Jesus. Our future looks like Jesus. And our lives the lives of his saints will one day look like Jesus. <laughs>